One could say the 2020 elections were historic for women participation in politics. First of all, according to the Associated Press, women were pivotal in electing President Joe Biden. With their vote, America also elected its first female vice president in history, Vice President Kamala Harris. According to the Center for, Af for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University, a record number of women are also serving in state legislators, in state legislators, in Congress, and in the presidential cabinet. And all this happened as we celebrated 100 years of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which guaranteed women the right to vote. What does this, this historic participation of women in politics mean for both Republicans and Democrats? What does it mean for America and the United States' elections? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond Bias, the Open-Minded Perspective podcast. I am your host, Dr. Craig Albert, Associate Professor of Political Science at Augusta University. Today, we are talking to Dr. Mary-Kate Lazat, Professor of Political Science at Augusta University. Dr. Lazat focuses on gender differences in public opinion, voting, and party identification. Her book, Gender Differences in Public Opinion, Values, and Political Consequences, with Temple University Press, was published in March 2020. Thank you so much, Dr. Lazat, for being here and joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, let's get right into it. And I was hoping we could just start broadly and then get more specific or narrow our focus a little bit. But why is it important to study gender differences in politics? Can you just elaborate for the listener this subject's importance? Sure. Uh, so the gender gap in voting uh, emerged or got a lot of media attention in the 1980 presidential election. And because women tend to be more likely to vote for Democratic presidential candidates as well as down-ticket Democratic candidates, and because women are actually more likely to vote since around 2000 than men, it matters because they make up 51% of the population, they're slightly more likely to vote, and they can actually have a huge impact on you know how elections turn out. And because that difference seems to be pretty constant over you know this time period from 1980 until now, it seems worthy of trying to understand why that occurs and then also, you know, how party identification and differences in public opinion also play a role. So what's the gender gap? What does that mean in and of itself? Sure. So the way that academics tend to calculate the gender gap is to take the percentage vote, say, for Democratic presidential candidate that women had. So I don't know what it was in 2020 off the top of my head, but say 60 percent of women voted for Biden. That's a little high. Um, and then they subtract the percentage of um, male votes for the Democratic candidate. So say that that was 48%. So that would give us a 12 percentage point gap, which is, I know that it's a 12 point gap in 2020, but I don't remember what the actual percentages were for men and women. And that's about as high as the voting gap tends to get. Um, it tends to range between like four and 12 points. So in 2004, it was quite low. It was only four points. Uh, but it was it was 12 points in 2020, depending on what exit polls you look at. And then, you know, for party identification, it's the same sort of formula. Um, so it's not a huge difference. It's not like the gap between African-Americans and white Americans. That's like over 40 points. Mm. Um, you know, four to 12 is definitely much smaller. But because women make up such a huge part of the population, it can have a big influence. 
Uh, for those listening and not watching, we just want to remind you that we are masked up. So pardon uh, if we're muffled or if the sound isn't as good as usual. I just wanted to say that because I forgot to say that at the start. Is the gender gap, does it stay stable across ethnicities and races for women? Or is it does it vary considerably amongst that those different demographics? That's a really good question. So uh, a lot of researchers and uh, political kind of pundits, I guess, will point to the fact that white women are um, not as likely to vote for Democratic candidates as uh, women of color. And that's true unless you start looking at white women with a college degree and then they start to look a little bit more like women of color. So it's definitely a huge part of the gender gap is the fact that women of color are more likely to vote and more likely than men of color to vote for Democratic candidates. So, But, but white women are more likely to vote for Democratic candidates than white men. So they are contributing to the gap. Um, even if sometimes the majority of white women aren't voting for a Democratic candidate. In the 2018 Georgia congressional elections, there's a big shift or the Republican Party was like, we're going to stay the path. We're not going to change. We're not going to focus on. I remember there's something being between a suburban woman and, and a city woman voter in, in the state of Georgia. And it's like uh, the Democrats have this pull for women but it seems like, okay, that's a steady, consistent thing for Democrats, but how come Republicans don't pivot and try to pull, you know, change their policies a bit? Or they, it seems, or one could argue, that they seem kind of static in trying to appeal to, to different crowds, and that, that seems like it's bad politics. Right. I mean, I definitely agree. I would argue, you know, in 2004, we saw the smallest gender gap for a presidential election since it emerged. And I think... You know, a lot of people pointed to security moms being the reason. The research doesn't actually confirm that. What I think it was is that George W. Bush, President Bush, uh, portrayed himself as a compassionate conservative, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's something that appeals to women, this idea of being compassionate and framing policies and a party's platform around that idea. Now, I'm not entirely sure if that's the case. That would be what I would speculate. But I think that the Republican Party has a great opportunity to frame their existing policy positions in that way to appeal to women and to be a little bit more flexible on certain policy positions. But generally, I think, yeah, they're they're sort of making a strategic mistake. But again, you know, this isn't a huge difference. There are lots of women who vote for Republican candidates consistently who identify as Republican, who have conservative opinions. So it's not as if the Republican Party is losing out on all women. So, I mean, I'm sure that they have very smart people that they pay a lot of money to make these sorts of decisions about, you know, what their base is going to look like and Mm -hmm. how they appeal to that base. So perhaps, you know, in their calculations, it just makes sense to not shift in any way because they might lose some other group that they rely on. I didn't realize that Junior Gett was so heavily tilted towards Democrats. And then it makes me Mm -hmm. think, well, we're allowed to be controversial on this show, so we're going to do it. 
it just seems like that's not really representative of the Republican Party. Like it's not a, a pluralistic party. And so it's missing a lot of voices, which could make the party better by incorporating those views into the party, especially if the, both parties are supposed to be policy centric, focusing on, you know, everybody. This right. is my hope. Both sides want what's best for America. They just have slightly different ways of viewing how to get there. But I don't think you can have what's the best idea for America if you're not including purposely your policy platforms towards all people. I mean, not all people, but a plurality. And if it's that big of a gap towards one party or another, it seems like there's something, some opportunity to grow for the conservative right. base. I think it's really interesting because if you look at the uh, 2012 post-presidential election Republican Party um, you know, discussion of where they want to go, they talked about, we need to become a big tent party. We need to appeal to more people. We need to start appealing to Latinx people who are, you know, very religious and conservative on a lot of different things. We need to start appealing to African Americans who have, you know, certain conservative opinions and tend to be religious. We need to start appealing to women on certain things like equal pay or, you know, things that we can get on board with. And then that's not what ended up happening when it came to 2016. And I think, you know, to some extent, the party didn't really decide what direction it was going to go in. The people who voted in the Republican primaries really ended up deciding what direction the party was going to go in by choosing Trump to be the Republican nominee. And since then, you know, the party has really kind of followed that path. Um, but I think, there's probably a lot of disagreement and discussion within the Republican Party about how maybe they should consider going going back to that idea that they were thinking about in 2012 of, you know, trying to appeal to some groups that they tend not to get votes from. In one of your papers, you, you talk about the differences between feminism and anti-feminism. So I was wondering if you could explain to to the, the audience what those terms mean political sense, like how do those apply to politics? And then what does it really mean to be a, fi a, a feminist? And then in my mind, as I was reading, I, I was like, can someone really be anti-feminist? Like, what does that mean? Uh, I was just wondering if you could talk about that. Sure. Um, so a lot of surveys have asked uh, feminist identification for, you know, a number of years. Um, and usually that question asks, you know, do you consider yourself a feminist or not, and then you're asked um, a strong feminist or somewhat a feminist. So when they include that somewhat, you tend to get a higher percentage of people calling themselves a feminist. Mm. A lot of people don't want to call themselves a strong feminist because of the stereotypes that still exist about what a feminist looks like and how they act. And then, you know, the other people who say, no, I'm not a feminist, they get two response options uh, in the follow-up question. And that is, you know, are you, you know, not at all a feminist or are you opposed to feminism? So generally the question is, you know, parsing out people who don't consider themselves a feminist versus those who do. The anti-feminist question was something that was new to a survey that was done in 2016. And so uh, my co-authors and I really wanted to understand who are these people who are identifying as anti-feminists? Are they the people who are saying, no, I'm not a feminist, and now given the opportunity, they say, I'm an anti-feminist? They're not. Mm. Most of the people who don't identify as a feminist 
would not then call themselves anti-feminist. It's a very small group of people who refer to themselves that way. But it's really interesting because in that paper, when we look at their policy positions, feminists, non-feminists, and anti-feminists actually agree on a lot of things. Like they agree on equal pay for women. Like the vast majority of all three of those subgroups agree on that. They actually, a slight majority in all groups think that abortion should be legal, which is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so there's certain things that they disagree on, uh, but generally it just seems like a weird division that's ultimately due to party identification. Democrats are much more likely to identify as feminists, whether they're a woman or not. And people who don't identify as feminists or who identify as anti-feminists tend to identify as Republicans. So it really seems to be driven more by partisanship than anything else, than like the actual policy views that, that they hold. So for whatever reason... And it makes sense, right, that, that feminism would become aligned with liberal views for a lot of reasons. Uh, the working definition that we have of feminism is this idea that you believe that men and women are inherently equal, uh, that, you know, they're not one is not superior based on religion or nature uh, and that's about it. That's a good description. I like that. One is not superior based on nature or religion. or, or That's an awesome way of thinking about it. The stereotype of feminists, I think, is one reason why a lot of people don't necessarily identify with it, even if they believe in gender equality. And, you know, the, the movements that have been associated with feminism that have referred to themselves as feminist movements have often been more radical in their beliefs that they've espoused. And so I think that that has turned off people who might believe in gender equality, but don't want to call themselves Mm -hmm. feminists. So about 30 to 40% of people will say that they're feminist, but over 80% of people say that they believe in gender equality. Now, part of that might be that people are kind of misrepresenting, right? It's not socially acceptable to say, no, I don't believe in gender equality. But it's still, even if some of those people are misrepresenting their beliefs because they don't want someone to think that they're sexist, that's still, there's a difference there, right? So it really has to do, I think, with, you know, stereotypes of what feminists are like and what they believe and what they're motivated to change. Do you think that this had any effect on the, this distinction between feminist anti-feminism had an effect on the 2016 presidential elections and then more so probably 2020? I think it probably did. Uh, so we look at, in that in that one paper with 2016 data, you know, anti-feminists were much more likely to vote for Trump and feminists were much more likely to vote for Clinton. But that's, I mean, it's mostly just because of party identification. Party idea, okay. Yeah, and I think ultimately Trump probably didn't make a huge difference. I mean, feminists were going to probably identify with the Democratic Party and vote for whoever the Democratic candidate was in 2016 and in 2020. And anti-feminists or, you know, those who I don't identify as feminists who are Republican, not all of them are, 
uh, we're probably going to vote for the Republican nominee, whoever that was. So ultimately, I'm not sure if it motivated anyone to like switch parties or maybe for some independence, but I doubt it. Mm. Do you think this pattern will hold steady going forward to 2022-2024 elections? Or is there any way that the there can be like a party realignment for this? I think it's probably pretty much cemented in this way uh, that it is probably not going to change for a while. There's some really interesting uh, research which argues that the Democratic Party as a whole is kind of seen as more feminine in terms of their policy positions and things that they advocate for, like compassionate policies to help the poor, those sorts of things. And the Republican Party is seen as more masculine in certain ways, uh, you know, being more aggressive in its foreign policy mm. and things of that nature. And so in that way, I think it's very similar with the, you know, feminism, anti-feminist distinction. Like these these things are just sort of solidified in a lot of people's minds who pay attention yeah. to politics. Well, let's talk about some of these 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 other issues, especially I'm super interested in uh, the roles of of conflict and the roles that that gender plays with supporting or not conflict. So in one of your 10,000 publications, you note that gender identity plays a pivotal role in differences in opinion over concern for personal security and safety. You note that women display lower support for military in interventions, lower support for retaliation against terrorist groups, and lo lo lower levels of support for using torture. Could you just talk a little bit about these personal security dispositions and how they are different between men and women and the effect of that on policy implications? Basically, it's one of the biggest gender gaps in public opinion. Uh, it's it's the biggest and it's the most consistent, but it's not always found. Uh, so in my research, I found that it can be quite large where women are much less supportive of using military interventions that can include uh, committing ground troops. It can include drone strikes. It can include lots of different uh, uh. strategies and tactics. And women tend to be less likely to support increased defense spending as well. It's really interesting because that has been the predominant thing that's been found in the literature. And then for my dissertation, which I finally got this published recently, uh, I found that it actually reverses when the reason for intervention is to end a humanitarian crisis. So women actually become more supportive. Now, what I did was an experiment where it was a fictional reason to go to war because in the real world, right, the reasons that we intervene militarily are very complex. Right. And so they often involve more than one reason. So if you think about the Iraq war, you can think about how, you know, it was regime change, it was terrorism, it was all of these different reasons. Or the Afghanistan war, right? You can think about how it was regime change. and But also for both of those, you can think about how there were humanitarian reasons, yeah. right? So for Iraq, it was you know, this idea that chemical um, weapons had been used against the Kurds or in Afghanistan, the treatment of women. So those are really complicated. So using an experiment where I could come up with this fictional 
reason for military intervention and isolate the reasoning uh, is where I found this reversal of the gap. I don't think it's ever been found in an actual intervention, um, even those that have been humanitarian. Uh, for Rwanda and Kosovo, I believe it was really, really close. The gender gap was super small, but I don't think that it actually reversed. So it'll be interesting to see if it actually ever does in, you know, with a real world conflict. But it's interesting to think about like why that dynamic changes. So I argue that it's because uh, women are just inherently or socialized into wanting to help others. And so with the humanitarian crisis, they might believe, well, this is the only way that we can help these people is by militarily intervening. Whereas under other circumstances, their focus is on, well, what's going to happen to, you know, ground troops? Do we really want to, you know, commit soldiers and possibly lose lives? Do those views generally hold steady when they when when people enter politics? Uh, so it's really interesting because the research is kind of mixed on this. So if we look at the American legislature, you know, Congress, we do see that female representatives tend to be less supportive than male representatives of committing the military or, you know, spending money on conflict. However, if you look globally, some of the research suggests that sometimes if women are in the executive position, like, you know, prime minister or president, they're just as likely to enter into conflict. And that might largely be driven by certain countries that have had uh, a number of women who have been uh, prime minister or prime minister during very difficult times in that country. Uh, so I'm thinking about uh, Israel and India in particular. When they had female prime ministers, it was during a time where there was a lot of conflict that I don't think that the female prime ministers caused in any way, uh, but they just happened to be in office during those times. It's an interesting question. I don't know whether or not I would guess, I would speculate that, yes, women would be less likely to enter into armed conflict. There's research that shows that Americans in particular, that's one of the reasons why post 9-11 Americans did not want a female president was largely because of this belief that if we were threatened, a woman president wouldn't be able to handle it as well. She wouldn't be willing to get aggressive if she needed to. I don't think that that's fair. But in terms of a lot of other policy stereotypes or personality stereotypes, those didn't really exist on the same level in that research post 9-11. That the one thing that continued to hold from earlier research was this idea that when it comes to the military, women would not be as good a commander in chief. I wish there was more ways to... I mean, in all issues in politics, but especially something like this, where the stereotypes can be done away with, with actual information. And uh, it just seems like we're missing out on so much opportunity and great leadership by not being willing to, to accept that. And even with, with Hillary Clinton, I mean, her policies were clear that, you know, avoid war, but if threatened, like bomb them, if nothing, like right. decimate was, them, if nothing else, like through bombs. And like, that's just, that's exactly what President Obama did was 
Right. Uh, he, he didn't invade necessarily, but he dropped drones, you know, drone yes. warfare everywhere, which is kind of what Clinton's policies were in, in, when yeah, she faced him in the primaries. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the, the most progressive wing of the Democratic Party was not a fan of the foreign policy of President Obama or Secretary of State. Clinton, but it's really strange that perhaps they were still painted with that broad brush of not being aggressive enough. I'm not entirely sure if that's the case, but it's very possible. Um, I just can't, for some reason, talking about this makes me think of uh, that image that they released of Obama and Biden and Clinton watching the Osama bin Laden raid and... Hillary Clinton looks horrified in that photo. And I really feel like there were probably a million pictures that they took and they chose the one that shows the woman looking horrified. Mm -hmm. And then that was released everywhere. And it just sort of played into this existing narrative that, you know, maybe women can't stomach this sort of thing. I don't know whether or not that's how other people perceived it, but that photo has always bothered me because, you know, Biden and Obama look serious, but she looks like upset, like horrified by what's happening. And I think that that just plays into this, this narrative, which isn't true. You're right. I mean, Margaret Thatcher and, you know, a million other female prime ministers have shown that, if push comes to shove, if that's, you know, the last resort, they have to enter into conflict or sometimes even when it's not, they will. So I think it's unfair to think that women wouldn't be willing to. For a long time, political scientists who study women in politics believed that the first female president would be Republican because of Margaret Thatcher, because of this idea that a woman running for the presidency could appeal to independence because women are assumed to be uh, more moderate or more liberal than their male counterparts when they're running in politics. And nowadays, political scientists who study this don't really think that that's as likely. But it's definitely still possible. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in the 2024 primary. Perhaps some female Republicans will run and get a little bit more traction than recently. Could that s- switch the that typical gender gap at all, do you think? Do you think that Republicans could pull in independents and maybe some Democrats if they p- put forth a, a, a woman candidate? I think it would be interesting to see. I think it would depend a lot on who the candidate yeah, is. Right. So I think part of the calculation of having Sarah Palin on the ticket in 2008 was this incorrect idea that all of these Hillary supporters from the Democratic Party who were upset that Obama was the nominee would all of a sudden switch parties. I think that happened to some extent, but it wasn't a lot of women. And so I think it really depends on the candidate. Mm. If it is a you know fairly moderate candidate, uh, not seen as extremely conservative, then it's possible that, you know, independents or some weak Democrats might decide to vote for that candidate. But I mean, party is everything ultimately when it comes to these sorts of things. And I honestly doubt that a female candidate would end up getting the nomination at this point in time 
uh, for the Republican Party to run for president. I really doubt that that's going to happen real soon with the Democratic Party unless Harris gets it simply because she was vice president. Yeah. So it's party. Everything's party. Like party Party ID matters. This is so interesting because all the founding framers were pretty much like, beware the party system. Like, don't do this. Don't go that way because it's just going to mess up everything. It's Mm going to take away true representation, you know, true values that that everybody needs to agree with. And like the next day, like parties. (laughs) It's just like so frustrating because that, and that, and this is something. I mean, I'm sure your students are the same way. Like they, they just don't understand that the party system controls almost everything when it comes to elections because the states delegate it like to the parties to right. handle how they're doing things. And I mean, almost in my opinion, almost nobody's truly represented by the, the party system the way it is. Like you kind of right. go with the the least bad in your opinion, mm-hmm. or you know, some you know policy voters, you know, issue voters that one thing's more important than the other. So they go with that party. But I mean, these two parties like are so, you know, why can't we be more like Europe where, you know, Germany has 30 recognized parties and like they're all in parliament. And I mean, that's, it just seems like we have a system that needs some restructuring somehow. Yeah, I agree. I mean, yes, you're right. The, the two parties control so much. I mean, they, they prevent any sort of third party candidate from, doing well because they make it so impossible to get on the ballot in most states because the two parties run the state legislature and they pass laws that make it so difficult. Yeah, I honestly think that the presidential system that we have is less democratic than parliamentary systems. And that's one of the reasons why, because, yeah, you don't get to choose a party that is as closely lined up with you as you would if there were more options. And there's a lot of other reasons why I think that too. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I think we're stuck with the presidential system. It's funny with students because when I say something about how our system isn't as democratic as it could be, because they've gone through school, you know, K through 12 or even more than that, believing that the American system is the best system they're really sort of shocked and appalled when I when I say that. And I'm like, well, we don't even replicate it in other countries anymore. Like when we help install a new government in another country, like you know Japan after World War II or Afghanistan or Iraq, like we're not giving them presidential systems. Right. We tried that in you know South and Central America for a while, and all of those ended in a coup, pretty much. So we don't bother with it anymore. We realize that the parliamentary system, which did not exist when the framers created our system, that the parliamentary system is better. I think that if the framers had seen the parliamentary system, they probably would have gone with that, but yeah, they absolutely. didn't have that as an option. It didn't exist at that point. So I mean, Madison pretty much describes it in Federalist 10, but... <laughs> There was no conception of it, so he didn't put it into practice. Uh, that's a whole other episode we could do. Yeah, uh, We have so many more issues to talk about, but, I, but I, I really want to give you a chance to just talk a little bit about, about your book and uh, anything different than what we've been discussing so far. And I'm going to put a, a link to for, for listeners and viewers to buy the book in our show notes when we go live with this. But, Ooh, thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, but if you could just tell a little bit about it uh, to stoke some people's interest in it. Sure. Uh, So 
it's mostly about gender differences in public opinion. The last chapter looks at uh, gender differences and vote choice and party identification and how those differences in public opinion fuel the party identification and vote choice gap. Basically, uh, the middle chapters of the book look at different policy areas and to what extent there's a gender gap and to what extent my main theory explains that gender gap. So the theory is that for whatever reason, it's likely socialized. Women are more likely to want to help people. And we can see that in terms of their behaviors as well as their opinions. But when we ask them these questions about how they think society should be and how they think other people should act, women are more likely to say society should care about the welfare of other people, should ensure the welfare of other people, and other people should behave accordingly, should help other people and treat them equally and that sort of thing. Now, lots of men think that too, but women are more likely to believe that. And I think ultimately when it comes to that versus sort of focusing on one's own self-interest or one's own achievement, I think men would probably be slightly more likely to focus on that. So my argument is that these pro-social values of wanting to help others end up explaining a lot of the gender differences in public opinion that we see. So I don't look at abortion attitudes in the book. Um, I don't look at a lot of different issue areas, but I do look at uh, attitudes towards military interventions and defense spending, attitudes towards gun control, death penalty, Social welfare policies like aid to the poor, welfare, food stamps, social security spending. I look at minority rights and equal rights policies. So uh, attitudes towards affirmative action, towards LGBTQ policies. And I also look at environmental policies. And I generally find that the pro-social values is explaining a sizable chunk of these differences. So women are more likely to want gun control, to be anti-death penalty, to not want increased defense spending, to want to protect the environment, to want marginalized groups to have equal rights, and to want more social welfare spending. And generally, these differences in Wanting to help people help us to understand why those gaps in policy positions exist. Wow, that, that is awesome. So I will definitely post that on the page. Uh, I guess in like a minute or two, can you give one takeaway for the listeners? Or, or if you could, you know, give, give one tidbit or something for folks to ponder on or something that you would like to see happen based on your research, what would that be? Oh my goodness. That Small is, question. <laughs> yeah, that is such a, a tough question. So I would say that gender differences in American political behavior and public opinion are important. There's a reason why the media tends to talk about the gender gap every presidential election year. 
and come up with this idea of soccer moms or security moms or waitress moms or any other hockey moms, little foolish things that they do. Those are never accurate, by the way. But um, I think that there's a good reason why the media pays attention to it and why I do research on it, because ultimately it can have this influence on elections. And I think that it's interesting to think about how women and men might have slightly different values, slightly different priorities, and slightly different perspectives on things that are happening in terms of current events and politics and policies, and trying to understand what differences emerge and why those differences occur. And I definitely would say that I am a non-essentialist, which anyone who is like a gender studies person would understand that that means I don't think that women and men are, you know, innately different, mm. that there are these huge differences that women are just sweet, wonderful, helpful creatures and men are like aggressive and terrible or anything like that. But probably due to socialization, we see these, you know, small differences that are important because they have all of these consequences for opinions and vote choice and party identification. And I think it's really important to think about, you know, how to frame different policy positions when you think about the Republican versus the Democratic Party in ways that appeal to women, but also just generally, like, isn't that what society is supposed to be about? Like helping people? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you That's know, what society implies, right? <laughs> right. The term. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, President Reagan even talked about, you know, the tide that raises all ships right. and not being focused on just, you know, helping one subgroup of society. And so I think that that perspective and that value is an important one mm. just from a normative perspective as well, uh, which is one of the things that interests me about it. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, thank you for, for agreeing to the show. Thanks for coming on. Congrats on the publication. Congrats on everything in your private life. Make sure to follow us on social media. Like us, subscribe, share, comment, email. We are at beyond underscore bias underscore podcast on the gram. Our YouTube channel is beyond bias podcast channel. Feel free to email us at you guessed it beyond bias podcast at gmail.com. And of course, follow me, your host. On all typical social media platforms, I am at Dr. Craig D. Albert. And as always, we end with a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, the eminent social and political philosopher. Quote, and if I were asked, now that I am drawing to the close of this work, in which I have spoken of so many important things done by the Americans, to what the singular prosperity and growing strength of that people ought mainly to be attributed, I should reply to the superiority of their women. End quote. Be nice to someone today and know that you are loved.